This podcast was recorded on February the 24th, 2023 at Turnmill Studios. Please make sure you check out our show notes for any disclaimers and further information. When NASA was learning to communicate with its spacecraft, it realized that by dialing down the signal, it could reduce the noise and achieve greater clarity. Just like them, we're on a mission to gain greater clarity on emerging opportunities and threats facing complex, fast-forward brands and businesses. And our podcast, like the NASA engineers before us, seeks to dial down the noise and find the emerging signals worth following. What does all this have to do with marketing and business strategy, I hear you say? Well, there's a lot of brand, customer, financial, and cultural noise out there on any given day. But underneath it all, there are signals that indicate emerging opportunities and threats. But how do you know and how do you separate the signals from the noise? And when you do, how do you respond? Signal Strength is a podcast series that will introduce you to the emerging opportunities and threats that you need to think about and create a safe space to learn how to respond to them. We'll talk to leading thinkers, experts, and pioneers in their fields who are defining the best new playbooks and approaches to solving near future problems and exploiting near future opportunities. It's all brought to you by Selby Labs, the foresight and innovation practice of Selby Anderson, who are here to help you win the future. As Mike Skinner would say, lock down your aerials. Hi, I'm Jerry Hopkinson, CEO of Selby Labs. And today we're going to be talking about the impact of geopolitics on brands and businesses in some of the usual ways and some of the ways you might not have considered. I'm also joined by Selby Anderson CEO, Dom Hawes, who takes a deep interest in geopolitics and is, as I like to call him, our podcast professor emeritus. Um, seriously, Dom is very widely engaged with C-suite leaders from agencies, large corporate brands, fast-growing unicorns, and everyone in between. Welcome, Dom. Hey, Jerry. I'm really excited to be here. I love a podcast, as you quite rightly said. And I also especially love listening to today's guest, Jerry. Why don't you tell us who you have managed to line us up? I'm delighted to be here with um, one of uh, our faculty. So at Labs, we have an amazing faculty um, who both inform the work we do, but also actively get involved. And I'm delighted to be here today with Dr. Elizabeth Stevens, who is uh, genuinely, and she won't be uh, embarrassed for me to say, a world-leading expert on geopolitical risk and the ways in which geopolitics impact our everyday lives, impact business, culture, politics, the economy, you name it. Um, and of course, geopolitics, as we all know, um, is having an, uh, a bit of a moment in terms of the impact on culture, economics, and business. So really timely and wonderful to have Elizabeth with us here today. Thank you, Jerry. And good morning, Jerry. Good morning, Dom. Thank you for having me. And that introduction was spot on for what we're about to discuss. Geopolitics is having a more profound impact on business, governments and society than it has since the end of the Cold War. Some would actually say since the end of the Second World War. And there's a number of reasons for this. One is shifting global economic power. 
between a North and South. One is the nationalist policies many countries adopted during COVID, uh, which has led to an increase in tariffs and restrictions on terms of trade. Uh, another is economic tensions and pressures caused as a result of COVID. And the other is the increase in competition between the world's great powers and the world's middle powers. So today we are going to dive into Europe and the EU to look at how geopolitics is reshaping the landscape within the continent and their relations with other countries, great and small. Excellent. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm excited to do that. And Elizabeth, I wonder if we could begin maybe just by sort of setting out from your perspective, what's the kind of prevailing mood music in terms of the impact of, of some geopolitical events on Europe, however we want to define. And I think we can think beyond the EU, but of course, that's the biggest game in town. And clearly, I know you'll talk about the invasion of Ukraine, for example, but probably much more. So could you just give us a point of view on that? Of course. Well, we have to start with the invasion of Ukraine. Sadly, it is the big event on the European continent. Uh, the first time a one European power has invaded another, really since the end of the Second World War. An unprecedented act from the Western perspective by Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia. Now, the EU and broader European response to the invasion has been decisive and incisive. Um, before the invasion, commentators would have been sceptical that the EU and its European allies could come together in such a cohesive way. And they've joined very closely with the United States on this. And it would be reasonable to say that the US is driving the stand against Russia. But the EU has shown a surprising level of coherence. That's not to say there haven't been uh, chinks in the facade over obviously changes to energy policy and supply of weapons to Ukraine. But broadly speaking, the EU is presenting a united front. But obviously, the invasion of Ukraine has impacted severely on the European economy, particularly with the upturn in gas prices as a result of the ending of gas imports from Russia. Also, it's impacted trade. A number of manufacturing companies, big names in Europe, had facilities in Ukraine, which for obvious reasons are no longer operational. And we've seen an increase in the price of soft commodities as well as grain supplies and shipments from Ukraine have been destabilised by the war. And obviously the influx of Ukrainian refugees into Europe, the EU and other European countries have done phenomenally well in caring for them so far and absorbing them and giving them per the Ukrainian refugees permits to work in their countries. So whether this cohesion will hold into sort of the, at, throughout 2023 and into 2024, particularly if we have a change in administration in the US, isn't clear at the moment. But right now, the EU, I would say, is performing very well. Uh, Elizabeth, thank you very much. And it's really good to have you in the studio, by the way. Um, I wanted just to ask very quickly, because it, it's... When this whole situation started, the labs ran a geopolitics workshop, which you kindly came and, and, and gave us the lay of the land. Extraordinarily prescient, as it turns out, because it meant that we as a team um, had some foresight on what was happening. So it was an amazing initiative, that. But one of the driving forces for that event was that Germany wasn't reacting 
as planned to this event. And then suddenly Germany swung into line and now Germany seems to be withdrawing slightly again and there seems to be a Germany versus France dynamic emerging. Do you see that as an important part of the next 12 months for us? Well, with, throughout the history of the EU, there's been a Germany-France dynamic. So I don't think we should read too much into it. When it matters, the countries do tend to come together as a cohesive uh, block. I mean, Germany's policy towards Russia uh, prior to the invasion was very different to that of France. And Germany is very much a mercantilist power. It's focused on trade relations with Russia. It does the same with China, which potentially could be an issue of China-US tensions increase going forward. Uh, Germany has, you know, constitutionally, it's not spent a great deal on its armed forces. We know when they did that previously, it didn't have a positive outcome. Uh, so they've always shied away from that. So asking Germany to rearm quickly and to arm its Ukrainian neighbour is actually a big step politically and psychologically for the German government and the German people. But Germany really has stepped up and it's inflicted significant self-harm on itself by you know, turning the pipeline off to Russian gas. So I think actually we can criticise some aspects of German policy, but overall I think they've performed very well. Were you surprised by the speed with which the Germans, given everything you've said, increased their spending on defence and contrib contribution to NATO doubling, I believe, and also got to grips with the energy crisis that, was, that they were facing um, what, what score would you give them? Well, Germany has committed to increase its defence spending and its contributions to NATO. But the challenge Germany has is because the German army and armed forces are actually relatively, we could almost use the word embryonic, say, compared to the UK or the American counterparts, it's actually difficult for their armed forces to um, absorb significant inflows of billions of euros in a short period of time. It takes time to expand military capabilities. So that is the challenge the Germans are actually facing. They've made these commitments. The money is actually there, but it's how do we spend this quickly and how do we expand our armed forces in terms of number of men and women fighting as well? That can't actually be done in a three to six month time frame. What they can do slightly more easily is provide armaments and heavy weaponry to Ukraine. But if we put this in context, you know, Germany is shying away from supplying tanks to Ukraine. But at what point if the EU and the UK for that matter can continue to supply Russia, does Putin actually say, well, I'm at war with NATO, very clearly, you are giving tanks to Ukraine. Actually, why should I confine this to Ukraine? Why shouldn't I roll into Poland? Why shouldn't I launch a cyber attack on London? Some of the Germans' caution, I think, is completely understandable. Y yes, indeed. And I, I, I think, you know, we're all very exercised and very distressed by um, these um, all too real events. I think, you know, for the context of Selby Anderson and Selby Labs, of course, we have to focus our minds on the impact on our clients and on their markets. And that means really we need to think about how to navigate what's the best way to navigate in these difficult times. May I cover a risk before yeah, we move on yeah, to yeah. opportunities? Just the risk being, and perhaps it isn't a risk, perhaps it's something companies and brands need to be aware of going forward. The EU... The UK, the US turned Russia into pariah state within 48 hours of the invasion of Ukraine. And we saw over a thousand companies with operations in Russia withdraw from the market, either because they morally felt it was wrong to continue business there or because their customers were telling them that they wanted them to withdraw 
or because their government said you can no longer do business in Russia. This is unprecedented. This has not happened since the Cold War. And actually, during the Cold War, we didn't have this level of integration. So going forward, brands do need to be mindful of their footprints, their supply chains, where they actually derive value from, because if the policies of their host government changes, they can find themselves with liabilities in a country that potentially wasn't an ally, but where actually legally they could do business. And I would say China is a concern in that regard, because last year, the Biden administration extracted pledges from the CEO of the leading US investment banks, that if China invades Taiwan, those banks will withdraw from China and impose sanctions. So I'd say that's actually a warning for businesses. The opportunity that comes from that is looking at markets where the governments in those markets, their values are more closely aligned with those of host governments. And when we say host governments at the moment, we're talking EU governments, UK, uh, US. And there's huge growing consumer markets across the world now in India, many other Asian countries, and also if we look further afield to South America. So do, do you think that, um, I guess I'm I'm sort of imagining a couple of things going on. One is lawyers probably were very busy rewriting licensing agreements for foreign territory relationships in the last year. And also that there was maybe a realigning or a rethinking of, well, where are the available markets for us? Because if you lose, you know, the, the entire, say, the entire Russian marketplace, let's just say China may be becoming more difficult then where are you going to make up those numbers? And I was interested to read that, you know, LVMH is now clearly one of the biggest companies in Europe, if not the biggest, booming numbers over the last 12 months. Interestingly, younger consumers in America were buying luxury goods at a, a kind of um, unparalleled rate. So, I mean, obvious question is, it, would you, is Europe going to refocus on America as a market? Europe is beginning to refocus on America as a market and the Inflation Reduction Act will be a motivation or force for that. We see US politicians, governors of states, CEOs of companies, particularly in the green energy sector, coming to the EU or to Davos to court European countries and say, please come and set up your operations in the US. So from a manufacturing and industrial perspective, the US is an appealing market. And in terms of consumer goods, it is as well. There are many American with very deep pockets who want to buy luxury European goods. Absolutely. Just just on that point of the Inflation Reduction Act, which isn't, if you haven't been following it, it isn't obvious what it is, because actually it's not really about inflation reduction, is it? It isn't, but it was a very good spin to um, get Congress and the American people behind what is in effect a green energy act. America has lagged behind uh, Europe and China, actually, in the green technology space. And under President Joe Biden, there is now a concerted effort for America to go green, or if not green, at least reduce its carbon footprint. And as we know with America, when they decide to pursue a particular policy, they throw all their resources behind it. And that's their deep pockets. And they have the most outstanding educational institutions in the world. So they have great minds to motivate that. So it is a multi-billion dollar investment strategy to encourage companies to go green and invest in green technologies, which basically is state subsidies, favourable tax rates in states to build solar powers and wind farm manufacturing facilities and tax breaks. 
and it isn't open just to American companies. They, it's all about made in America. The product has to have a very high made in America component, but it's available for EU, UK companies, Indian companies to take advantage of the subsidies. So really interesting. So um, I, I remember hearing some reaction from the EU and indeed from the UK government, kind of not being best pleased, shall we say, that this might be considered a bit protectionist by America. Do you think there will be a kind of trade war or will the Europeans try to mimic this and do their own green energy infrastructural spend above and beyond what they're doing? Or how do you how do you see it playing out? Given the need for cohesion between the EU and the US over Ukraine and the fact that two blocks have worked very well together in this space, I think we'll avoid a trade war. Um, I do think the EU will launch their own comparable initiative. Whether they're able to generate the same level of funds is unclear, but the EU is very committed to combating climate change. And privately, at least, while some of those EU heads of states and political leaders may be infuriated by the American approach, they will actually welcome it as well. Because without America taking very serious action to reduce its carbon footprint, the whole Go Green project will founder. So I think an agreement will be reached which will avoid tariffs. And I think actually it will kickstart um, the EU to look at how it can support domestic companies. And in the UK, we definitely need to do that. We had British Vault went into receivership last week and because it doesn't receive any type of support or subsidies from the government. That's why you know, China, South Korea has done so well in the tech space because they receive discounted land from the government, subsidised energy. You know, it isn't a level playing field. If we, if we stick with energy for a moment, I mean, um, obviously the invasion of Ukraine and the, the ongoing and ensuing impact on energy, um, resource nationalism, as I think it used to be called, is, is playing out every, everywhere. In this country, you know, in the UK, the government has said, look, they're going to reinvest or increase investment in nuclear, obviously slightly controversial. Um, lots of hurdles to overcome. France, similarly, are trying to get everything back online. The Germans are not quite sure which way to go. How do you see sort of energy investment and potentially the impact and and and, uh, and, and threats and opportunities for businesses across Europe uh, over the coming few years? Well, that energy and cheap energy is another reason that um, the US is appealing to European manufacturing companies. They have you know, very cheap uh, gas mostly because it's domestically produced. There are obviously tremendous um, opportunities for European and UK companies in that space. There will be a move back to nuclear power in the UK and France. In Germany, there will be two. It will be more gradual. I mean, let's think about why the Germans moved away from nuclear uh, power. It was concern after the Fukushima incident in Japan, which was in 2013, and there was a radiation leak. Um, but if we put that into context, uh, Japan is situated in an earthquake zone, Germany isn't. So the incident that happened in Japan could not be replicated in Germany. So we could say in some respects, from a practical level, the Germans overreacted. And they went back to burning coal on an unprecedented scale, which is you know, worse for the environment. So I think... Um, Nuclear is going to be the way that we can generate sufficient power to enable us to consume energy in the way that we do now. 
Um, to produce it once the facility is built is relatively inexpensive. But obviously the question is, how are those facilities decommissioned? And we could say that with technological innovation in you know 10 or 20 years time, there may be a far more effective way to decommission nuclear power stations. Obviously, we we'll see considerable investment in wind power. It's something the UK has in abundance. Um, and we'll see more in solar in certain European countries as well. Um, so definitely huge opportunities there. But whether the underlying technology is manufactured in the EU or it moves to the US uh, really will depend on subsidies offered by EU governments. So we're looking at today, um, obviously, the, uh, the EU, and we're covering like some of the really essential building blocks for business, like can I get energy? Um, and, and, and this is about the EU, not the US, but it just seems the US has so many unfair natural advantages. It the really single does. language market, the size of the population, the domestic, um, the ability to create energy domest- um, um, themselves, the culture, the export of culture around the world has meant that everyone wants a piece of America. So, but unfortunately, we're not there, right? So, so if you're a brand now looking at Europe, um, the war, the defining factor we're saying for the year ahead is the war in Ukraine. If you're if you're trying to run a business in Europe, what are the factors? excluding Russia, Ukraine, that are worth looking at. We're not America. That may be our destination market. But what are the essential building blocks here, like access to energy we just discussed? Our market isn't a single language market. It's multi-language, multi-culture. Our geography is very complicated. What's happening in labor? Like, Do we have a workforce? It, it, well, I, if I just jump in on that for a moment, just from a, from a kind of demographic perspective and cultural perspective, and a lot of the work we do in labs looking at looking at this stuff. I mean, what we 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 know about phrases like the Great Resignation. We know that we probably in the UK, in the UK, we seem to have a perfect storm at the moment. By the way, of almost all the things that other countries are dealing with, we're kind of dealing with them at a slightly bigger, more existential level. Don't know why. It's just our turn to be, you know having those problems. But we've had people pull away from the labor market. We've had young, more young people in education than ever before, which is great, but they're not available for work. We've had people retire early. And we've had a significant population in the UK with the impact of COVID keeping them out of work. So we've got a labor shortage, despite the economy being under stress, we have a labor shortage that is looking like it's going to continue. And of course, it's exacerbated, and I don't want to get political, by our attitude, shall we say, to um, the labor market um, and free movement, etc. So that's a problem. And it's a problem in, in uh, kind of physical labor, in you know, um, seasonal labor, and it's a problem in the healthcare system, an acute problem, for example, but it's also a problem in industry. And so what are the answers to that? So one of the things I'm interested in is there is a big debate in Davos about globalization. Is globalization over? Um, And I'm in the camp, um, for what it's worth, that says, no, it's not over. It is changing. And in particular, one thing has gone unnoticed. And I think, but I think this aspect of globalization is actually accelerating. And that is um, the globalization of um, services, of people who are able to work for you if you're in Europe, in other countries in the world who speak your language. And probably, let's be honest, English is the lingua franca, um, who are highly educated. Um, and technology is enabling those people to be an active part of the workforce. So pretty, uh, pretty amazing, really, and a huge opportunity if people embrace it. I think if you add to that what's going on with automation 
and what's going on with, I know we're all obsessed by AI at the moment, me included, um, but you know, the ability to automate certain functions and engage and offshore some aspects of professional services, albeit some of the more um, rudimentary aspects, huge opportunity in my mind. I would agree with that. I mean, the pandemic, where we all rapidly began to work from home, has accelerated the use of technology in the workplace. And where you, so only three years ago, we would all be expected to be in our offices five days a week. Now, CEOs of companies are struggling to get their workers back into the office even three days a week. And that raises interesting points about the future of work, because as we've already said, we have a labour shortage in the UK and in Europe we also have CEOs of companies coming into conflict with workers. You know, the CEOs want their workers to return to the office. Actually, if we're all working remotely, we can use an international workforce. Yeah, we can. And I, I, I think the, you know, it, it, we all know about kind of like the gig economy and um, there are pros and cons to that for, for everyone, including those who are involved in it. But what we're seeing now is some of the ideas of the gig economy playing out into the middle class and middle management and yeah. knowledge workers, and it is becoming a global phenomenon. So the challenges in my mind about, around that are kind of threefold. Firstly, there is a cultural challenge. How do you um, maintain a, a, a culture and em employee brand when <coughs> employer brand when your workforce is increasingly diverse and not all physically coming together? Secondly, how do you create um, consistency when you're operating, um, again, with diversity in time and place. And thirdly, how do you use technology in the right way to um, bring, make some of that easier? But we need to think about the future of production, the future of um, knowledge work. How do we do it? And we need new business models. Um, and they, you know, now is a really good moment to start to test and learn. And in terms of culture, we're seeing greater co cultural divides now within countries. I mean, the US is perhaps the prime example, um, but we're seeing it also in Canada, in Brazil, in the UK, um, in some European countries, but also within the EU itself. You, Hungary and Poland are far more illiberal in their views and values than other members of the EU. So when we talk about creating a cultural cohesion amongst workers, we would find that some UK workers, some workers in Germany, some in India or Brazil may actually share the same values, whereas other people within those countries may have very different cultural views. So I think cultural frame of reference is changing dramatically. Absolutely. And I, I also think that, you know, whereas when you made things in a particular place in a particular way and quality and risk were your primary concerns, you had a hierarchical structure and you had the classic pyramid structure. Everybody understood it. And that's that was it. We're now in a disruptive world um, where we're not necessarily making things and where speed of response and innovation are as important. And therefore, I think we're starting to see the emergence of much flatter organizations, more um, connected and interconnected groups of people where decision-making is often at the periphery and where the value of the center is is a kind of um, dashboard of information that can be relayed. And so when I talk about business models, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely talking about the way we do things. Um, and it may be that Europe is behind 
um, in terms of some of these behaviors compared to particularly the West Coast of the United States, but also Asia? What would would you agree or disagree? What do you think? I would say the EU is rapidly catching up, perhaps as a result of COVID. But it does take a fundamental reorientation of mindset if you're the director, CEO of a company to suddenly realise all your workers are working remotely, or at least some of the time. But the natural next step from that is to think, well, if I have workers in New York who actually don't want to come to the office or you know, I'm based in London and my workers don't want to come into central London, well, why do I need to employ workers who are at physically based within the US or within the UK? Why can't I employ educated workers from any country in the world. So actually, while it's difficult to get visas now to come and work in the UK, employing people to do those jobs in Hyderabad or Sao Paulo becomes far more realistic. And I can see companies moving in that direction. And also the salaries you would need to pay someone to work in those locations are still lower than in the UK. So actually, it's a could be a viable business model going forward. And I think we'll see more of that. I think that's the downside of hybrid working and workers you know, flexing their muscles, using the leverage they have to say, I want to work from home. Well, eventually that could be an issue for this them. strikes me this could be part of the solution to our inflationary environment because you've only got two options in an inflationary environment. You either put your prices up and exacerbate inflation or you try and strip costs out of your business model to help the margin squeeze and maybe offshoring is one or automation of ways we can do this. I, I I agree 100. percent I think um, I think you know we're dealing right now with the impact of inflation, which is you know some knee jerk short term reactions, but really the opportunity is to look across your business and say I need to reinvent my business for the next economic cycle, which is going to reward efficiency. And I think efficiency has been slightly uncool for a few years as we've we've been more interested in ideology than efficiency and in, in the way in which a business communicates its values, quite rightly, very important. I think we're going to get back to basics, but I think the innovative opportunity is to reimagine your business to be more efficient. Um, and by that, I don't mean, you know, cheap and cheerful. I mean, productivity um, th the most productivity per the least amount of effort expended is going to be, you know, where people are going to invest. Um, value creation, effortless value creation, um, and then being able to deal with the shocks that are coming. Because no doubt, Elizabeth, you'll tell us about, we haven't, you know, it, we've got some more. It's not going to go away, right? We definitely have some more. But the point you made earlier within the UK, one of the reasons we're short of workers at the moment is that more young people are in education than ever before, which can be viewed as a positive. But the question is, what are they studying? So in the UK, we're always short of medical professionals, of mathematicians, of scientists, of those with particular tech skills. So now we're in a hybrid working environment. Companies can go overseas to get students, young people who actually have the educational uh, background that they need for those industries. And I think that will be very positive for business going forward because that overcomes the skill shortage in the UK. A absolutely. I, I mean, it seems, I mean, I was reading about um, the projected um, increase in higher education uh, attendance, for example, in India is just going to rocket in the next decade. But we've already got, I mean, if I just take India for a moment, and again, 
Anglo-Saxon point of view. Apologies to my uh, the other the other European power languages out there, but I'm talking about English right now. Um, there are twice as many English speakers in India as there are in the UK by population. I mean, that's incredible, um, and a large percentage of them are highly educated and highly skilled. Um, so access to that workforce is incredible. Um, the same again in parts of Africa. In Egypt, there are more English speakers than in Australia, um, which is astounding. Um, not denigrating Australians for a minute. They obviously have many great skills to bring and you can't compare the two countries. But I think, look, there are 35 million English speakers in Germany. Um, not talked about a lot, not as a, as a native language, but, you know, the globalized cultural harmony in that way of creating some a, a universal uh, ability to 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 work across borders is not stopping because we're having a few local difficulties. I see it accelerating, and I think, as I said, in the service sector, it's it's going to be a huge opportunity. I agree. I think it's actually very positive. Okay, I think it's time. Let's try and soak because we covered a large range of subjects. Let's try and summarize where we've got to on geopolitics, the EU, the war, opportunity, culture. Who's going to have a stab at that? Okay, well, my my uh, couple of things um, that are jumping out at me are, um, firstly, I think there's a huge opportunity to participate in uh, the new imperative of going green and of greening industry. I don't. I think that there's plenty of opportunity for European businesses across the spectrum to jump on that and um, you know get involved. And so I would say that's going to be a big theme over the next five years. I'm absolutely going to fly the flag for, um, if you like, the reimagining of the service sector, um, both um, offshoring and automation, but also it, new business models that that focus on resiliency, efficiency, and productivity. So I think that's going to become super important. Um, and I think the third thing, just finally, is that culturally, I don't see globalization slowing down. I see it speeding up. Okay, Elizabeth, next 12 months, like politically within the EU or within the European continent, do you see any surprises coming or have we just got more of the same, another 12 months of no energy, high prices and like abject misery as we try and get on with our work? <laughs> Uh, the EU will come up with a plan to counter the US um, Inflation Reduction Act, whether it takes the form of subsidies or other support for green industry across the continent um, is yet to be revealed. But I think they will grasp that opportunity um, in terms of war with Ukraine. Yes, it's a given for the next 12 months. The unknown with that is will Putin escalate? I don't necessarily mean militarily escalating into other NATO member states, but with cyber attacks. I think we can see that um, happening. And I would say the war in Ukraine and the government response is a warning to companies that governments will use their power to force companies to adhere to their geopolitical objectives in a way that we haven't seen for some time, hence companies being forced to withdraw from Russia. But this can also be an opportunity because companies need to be aware of the geopolitical landscape so they can plan accordingly. And we may not be able to identify 100% where the next uh, hot zone might be, but I think we all have a very good idea. Wow, what a place to end. Thanks, Elizabeth. 
And thanks, everyone, for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. We would love to hear what you think. You can find us on LinkedIn. And if this is your first listen, please do subscribe so you can keep up to date and we'll tell you what's coming up. Speaking of which, uh, our next episode is going to be all about the future. In fact, it's going to be about foresight and we'll feature the mighty Sean Pilo de Shenessy, who is head of foresight and strategy at Selby Labs, has about 25 active years in the bag, understanding horizon scanning and helping brands to make sense of what's coming. So tune in for that one. It's going to be a belter. If you'd like to learn more about Selby Labs or reach out with any suggestion for future episodes or anything at all, just give us a, give us a shout. Please get in touch at info at selbylabs.io or visit us at www.selbylabs.io. And until then, here's to winning the future.